The coaches' votes are in, and we have the first team all Pac-12 all the way down to the honorable mention. Where did they get it right? Where did they get it wrong? And also, the players declaring for the draft. There's a couple we have to talk about. There's a bunch of Pac-12 players who went into the College Football Hall of Fame, and the Pac-12 refs are calling the national championship game. Nothing could go wrong, right? I'm George Reister with Ralph Amston, and this is the Pac-12 Apostles. Ralph, I think we should start this episode on a on a on a high note and congratulate those Pac-12 players who are going to the College Football Hall of Fame. We got Jake Plummer, Troy Palomalu. And head coach Dennis Erickson. I think we need to give all those players a and coach a round of applause. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, and then how much respect are we supposed to pay to Vince Young every time he gets mentioned? Does he is he still the owner of our conference? Is that you know what what do we do there? Because that you know that that guy prevented probably one of the um, all time football dynasties from happening with his performance in the, in the national championship um, against, you know, what, what collection of what, what might have been the best college football team that the, the Pacific Conference has, has ever uh, put together. So um, happy for him as well. Uh, you know, Jake Plummer is somebody who uh, kind of formative to my experience as a college football fan. Um, you know, it, it, my first year really paying attention was the year that he took Arizona State to uh, to the Rose Bowl, and that was a really, really special team. And then he went on to continue to play in Sun Devil Stadium for the first six years of his NFL career. And then when I uh, was moving up, uh, when I was living up in Wyoming during my college years, where everybody's a Broncos fan, he had a lot of success out there in Denver. So he's just always sort of been in my consciousness um, as a football fan, and so I'm happy for. I'm happy for him. Uh, Dennis Erickson, obviously, uh, I think probably it doesn't get talked about enough how uh, well he stocked up Oregon State and Arizona State with talent. Um, And I think that, you know, he's probably part of that transition that really helped Utah fit in um, in the Pac-12. Not the best game day coach in the world and doesn't really get credit for the two championships he won at Miami because people kind of say that, you know, those were other people's players and somebody else's culture that was already um, in place there. But, but I will say that, you know, uh, he doesn't get the same benefit of the doubt for Todd Graham winning 28 games in his first three years with a lot of Dennis Erickson's players, not all Dennis Erickson's players. He had, they had a lot of Juco kids mixed in too. Uh, and then, you know, he doesn't get a ton of credit for being the ones, you know, to bring up Steven Jackson and Chad, uh, Ochocinco and TJ Hushmanzada and a lot of the guys that he recruited out to Oregon State. So um, I, I think that, you know, he's definitely been part of the fabric of college football for the last 40 years, and, and, and it's fun to see him get some honors as well. Yeah, Coach Coach Erickson, he was, he was a good dude. I, I Like in terms of uh, every player that I knew had positive things to say about him. And, and obviously if you – coached three different schools in the Pac-12 and you were on staff to really help some of the younger coaches that were brought in, then you did a good job. And he deserved 
his Hall of Fame honors. I, I looking at the list of people who went into the Hall of Fame this year and knowing the people that are already in the College Football Hall of Fame, this is exactly why you should not rely on people's recognition of you to or validation to control how you feel about yourself or how you feel about your accomplishments because you don't always get the recognition period and you especially don't always get it when you deserve it and and i i say that because there's one name on well two names really that stick out on this list so jake jake plumber one but the other name that stuck out on this list was rocket ishmael rocket ishmael was at notre dame he's one of the most like in the from 88 to 90, he was literally the most or could have been the most popular player in college football history. I well, I'm sorry, in, in college football at that time. I mean, Notre Dame was on top. Um, they, he was just so dynamic. And it, it was but he's in the same class as as McNair I'm sorry as Jonathan Jonathan geez uh, Darren McFadden Darren McFadden was a fine player at Arkansas Arkansas didn't win anything he's also in the same class as uh Joe Joe Thomas who finished in 06 he's uh he's going to the he's going to the pro football hall of fame as well but it's just interesting to see guys that finished in 96 get in guys that finished in 1990 get in, but then you have a guy finished in 2007 this sounds like a jerry jones uh money led uh led thing what do you think i mean yeah <laughs> but I, I you you bring up jerry jones and you bring up money and that just kind of brings me back to uh Dennis Erickson for some reason, and I'm, I'm reading a little bit about him. Did you know that when he was named the head coach of Washington State, which was back in 1987, his five-year deal had a base salary of $70,000 a year? Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Dude, so he did not get rich coaching. I mean, eventually, eventually, but he, you know, that so – he he went uh, three seven and one his first year in Washington State, flipped him uh, to go nine and three in 1988. That's what got him the Miami job, which is then he went 63 and nine in Miami, which is what then turned around and got him a couple of NFL gigs. And so he definitely got his money. Um, but it's just interesting to see how far coaching salaries have been inflated. Oh yeah. Um, Dude, dude, there's not even an assistant on a Power Five staff probably that makes seventy thousand dollars, even at like records or was, or especially not now that they got a new <laughs> out that they're playing paying the head man uh, four million dollars. I can guarantee you there are ground screw guys that make more than seventy thousand. Yep, um, Rocket Ishmael finished in 1990. Second in the Heisman Trophy race. Second in the Heisman Trophy race. I mean, it was electric, but whatever, man. Um, 
But congratulations to those guys, and especially Troy Palomalu. I've known him since we got to college. Uh, we played together literally from 99 uh, We both left our junior year. Um, and he's a pro football Hall of Famer. But but he, this dude's a good person. And, yeah. I, and he was just very – he was a guy who played so fast. I just, I just remember that. I remember playing – um in Alton Stadium. I caught a pass. I was running a, a, a crossing route across the middle. I thought that when I caught the ball, because w- when you're out there running routes, you have spatial awareness of where everybody else is on the field. So you know when you're gonna get hit, you know, you know, uh where people are, whether you need to catch it and tuck or whatever. I caught a ball probably on like the 15 yard line on a crossing route. I thought that I was going to run in the end zone unimpeded. I there was nobody there. There was nobody even close to me. And then but as soon as I caught the ball and turned, Troy Palomalo hit me right in my hip. I was like, "Where the hell did you come from?" Like that that's the way he played football. And as a DB, that is an excellent trait if that's what people say about you. Where the hell did this dude come from? And so that's the highest praise that I can give him. Where the hell did you come from, buddy? Yeah, I think the coolest thing about Troy Troy Palomalo is that there wasn't anybody who didn't like him. Um, And that includes, like, opponents. You know, you, you can have that thing where somebody's a really really good player and you can hate them for it and and respect them later you know um down here um in the territorial cup rivalry all the asu fans hated uh scooby Wright, but they when he was done they were like oh thank goodness like we respect that guy he was great um with troy palomalu it was like when you're playing against him and he did something even if it was to or against your team, you, part of you was like, wow, <laughs> you know, that was so cool. When he would blitz up the middle, when he would time the snap count and blitz up the middle from the defensive backfield, like, uh, I mean, I, I remember the, uh, the Super Bowl between the Cardinals and the Steelers uh, 10 years ago, and it was like the first time the Cardinals ever had any success. I was like, so excited to root for them, and, but my wife is from Pittsburgh, and she wouldn't even let my infant son dress up in Arizona Cardinals gear, even though they'd been there before a million times. He's out there in black and yellow, you know, and 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 uh, and I, I remember in that Super Bowl just wanting nothing more than for the Cardinals to have success. But every single time I saw Troy Polamalu, like anywhere on the field, that's where my gaze went. Like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Um, so even in like the biggest moment when I wanted my team to win more than anything in the entire world, I was still like fascinated by it. Um, by Troy Palomalu and, 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 you know, how they were using him. Um, he was just, I mean, I, I, I would liken him to, um, you know, like Oh four Oh three Mike Vick of where that's the reason you would turn the game on to see what he was doing. And so, um, and yeah, and he had a lot of success at the, at the collegiate level and it's cool to see him being honored by the college football. Hall of Fame. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, I, I wanted to to just m- mention something really quickly is that I was thinking about 
about what was going on with the Heisman Trophy, what was going on with the um, with the finalists for the Heisman Trophy. And that got me to thinking about, about what was going on in college football where people hate the hate the transfers, right? They're like, oh God, this is making college football wrong and all of these things. Three of the four Heisman Trophy finalists, Joe Burrow, Justin Fields, and Jalen Hurts, didn't even aren't playing at the school that they started at. So if they weren't allowed to transfer, they would be sitting on the bench, sitting behind somebody right now. Because they either picked the wrong school, somebody else, you know, played well in front of them, because it's hard to take people's spot. I Yeah, not not only that, but in the case of everyone but Joe Burrow and Ohio State, like the <laughs> that team they left had less success. You know, Jake Fromm and, and Georgia are not going to the college football playoff. Tua and Mac Jones in Alabama are not going to the college football playoff. And so, um, yeah, it, it definitely uh, – this is definitely going to embolden anybody who's out there who believes, like, I got to do what's best for me. Um, because, you know, Justin Fields is a Heisman finalist over Jake Fromm, who would have had him on the bench. You know, and 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 even even you know Jacob Eason is out here, you know, getting the opportunity to 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 lead Washington, and they're going to play in a bowl game and everything like that. And he might he might have the opportunity to go pro, whereas he would just be chilling in Athens doing nothing. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's probably this is this is probably the case in point. This this college football playoff is what anybody will point to when they say that like that. That you know, transferring might not necessarily be a a, a good thing. Um, you can point to the 2019 college football playoff and say like, what about these guys who bet on themselves? Because if if Joe Burrows had stayed at Ohio State, do you think he would have beat Justin Fields out? I don't I don't think so. I think the writing was on the wall there. Um, you know, he goes to LSU and he's able to have a ton of success. Justin Fields, to me. Uh, and I'm probably in the minority on this, but to me, Justin Fields looked like the best player in college football. Um, and he would have been on the bench at Georgia. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that I think that the, the verdict is in. This is what you do is you bet on yourself and you put yourself in the best possible situation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I 100 percent agree. 100 percent agree with it. And. Okay, so yeah, that I, I've always been a favor of players being able to to transfer. I've always been a favor of it because the coaches move without you know without penalty. They get a chance to go wherever they think that their best move is. So players should have that same flexibility. They do to a certain extent now, but then there are still times that the NCAA you have coaches hold up their transfers like Colson Yankoff at Washington. I mean, there are countless times where people are deemed eligible immediately and don't face, you know, uh, scrutiny from the NCAA or from their former team. And then there are other players who have legitimate reasons 
and shouldn't even have to make up reasons for immediately being eligible. Like, why is Justin Fields, was Justin Fields immediately eligible for going to Ohio State, but then the kid transferring from Georgia, I think, to uh, to like West Virginia or something like, like that, he's not immediately eligible. He's got a sick family member. And you're like, why? Because big money wins. It, it, it's just, it's just crazy. Like, not that, not that Justin Fields should not have been eligible because he should have been. It's, it's just frustrating. Um, another award. Actually, let, let's just get to the Pac-12 All Conference Awards. I just thought that. So you, you had, um, you had. On the Pac-12 team, you have the quarterbacks, Tyler Huntley and Anthony Gordon. Mind you, these votes are selected by the Pac-12 head coaches, the Pac-12 head coaches. And they're done within 48 hours of the Pac-12 championship. So this is not a case where it was a regular season and you then don't see what happened in the Pac-12 championship. You just see it. What was your take? Actually, yeah, before we even go there, Ralph, what was your take on the Pac-12 uh, honorees? Um, I, I I thought that it was a little bit messy. I mean, I, I, I don't think that there's much more that I can say about it that wasn't sort of indied about back and forth online. The... Um, the thing that stood out to me more than anything was obviously uh, Kayvon Thibodeau winning the uh, uh, Pac-12 Defensive Freshman of the Year award, but being behind Drake Jackson on the uh, um, list of honorees. Drake Jackson, I believe, made all Pac-12 second-team defensive linemen, and um, Kayvon Thibodeau was just an honorable mention. And so that begs the question of how how could coaches possibly determine that someone was the best freshman in the conference, but not better than another freshman? Like that that part of it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, I thought that uh, you know I I thought that Justin Herbert probably deserved more than just an honorable mention. I think that uh, Anthony Gordon's stats in a six win season were a little bit hollow. Um, even though he he definitely deserves some praise for uh, for what he was able to put together as a fifth year senior, I'm not saying that he does. Another thing that stood out is if you want to know why University of Arizona is struggling, in the last 40 years there have been three seasons in which they have not had a Pac-12 first team member or a Pac-12 second team member, and all three of those years have come. Wait, in the last wait, what? Seasons. What? So that. So in the last 40 years, there are only three seasons in which University of Arizona did not have a Pac-12 first team or second team honoree. And that was, you know, Pac-10 for the 30 years it was Pac-10. And those years are 2016, and 2019. They didn't have a single person on the first team or the second team for the third out of four years. Wow. That's cool. So things are not good in Tucson. And also, uh, Hamilcar Rashad probably shouldn't have been second team. And they had him as a linebacker. So it makes me wonder if they were just trying to fit him in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, dude. 
Look, so the, the thing that stood out to me, that stood out to me, I believe, here's the thing that makes no sense to me, no sense to me, is you have the team that won the conference, the team that won the conference in the Oregon Ducks have only one player on first team all Pac-12, Penesul, and then have, what, three players, well, and then have C.J. Verdell, Shane Lemieux, and Troy Dye on second team. That's it. That's all you got from the Pac-12 champion. That makes zero sense. Like, and it's unprecedented. When you go through the yeah. like the previous seasons, the previous seasons, like any team that finished that won the conference, especially going away, always has some of the most selections on first team Pac-12 and set all Pac-12 selections. So Washington finished four games behind the Ducks in the North, had more first team selections then they even had total selections. And we're not talking special teams. And that's not even counting special teams. USC lost twice as many games and scored 32 fewer points against Oregon and had more all-conference players. Utah didn't beat USC and didn't beat Oregon and didn't win the conference championship and had two and a half times the number of all-conference selections as Oregon. 10 to 4. Does that sound like a coincidence to you, uh, Ralph? Or does this sound like like the other coaches in the Pac-12 hate Oregon? No, I, th- I think that I-, I think that it was just. I mean, this is supposedly supposed to be the head coaches making these picks, and it just shows you that uh, the coaches have a, as hard of a time watching Pac-12 football as most basic fans. <laughs> so, if you want to kick responsibility up to Larry Scott, feel free. But I, I just. I looked at this and it, it just seemed like it was kind of hastily put together. They didn't they didn't look at it from which the angles that it would look messy. Because, you know, just it, from an Arizona State perspective, you saw the complaints that for the second year in a row, even though Arizona State's defense is vastly improved, Arizona State didn't have a single player on the first team or second team defense. Well, ask Oregon and ask Cal, who were both ranked at the time, about Arizona State's defense. Right? There has to be somebody from there that has that that is in the top 24 players um, in the conference. Then you look at the year that uh, Isaiah Hodges had, and we were debating on this podcast whether he was one of the top three receivers talent-wise. I mean, production-wise, it wasn't close, but we, we were debating whether he was one of the top three receivers talent-wise in the conference on this podcast. You know, he ends up second team. You have Anthony Gordon, who was outplayed by Jake Luton head-to-head, who was probably outplayed by Jaden Daniels head-to-head. Was, you know, and they, they, they only won um, you know, something like four conference games, and he's getting... Uh, honored over Luton. He's getting honored over Herbert, which is the one that I thought was, you know, the most ridiculous. And then just on its face, the simplest thing of, of honoring a Pac-12 freshman and then in your conference awards saying that that freshman is actually worse than another freshman or had a worse year than another freshman. It's just, 
this conference can't do anything smoothly. It, it feels like. Yeah. And then the co- the coaching the coach of the year thing is weird because there is a bunch of years where Whittingham has deserved it, and this year probably wasn't it, dude. I, so you you have the coach who had the most Pac twelve all Pac twelve first and second team players. He had ten of them, bunch of them on the first team. Loses the conference championship by twenty two points, and then the to the guy who you say had the least amount of talent, clearly, because only four players made it. Four. So how does that guy then not win Coach of the Year, no, Ralph? I'm, I'm with you. It, it felt like it, it's hard for me to get super mad about that one because it's like, all right, well, he probably, you know, there are quite a few times when he probably deserved that consideration um, and didn't and didn't get it, and now he has it, and so, you know, good for him. And they, he did go eight and two in conference play, and the eight wins were by an average of forty to ten. So I, I do understand. I, you can make a case, um, but as somebody else who I follow did say that, you know, for so many people, coach of the year is about breaking and exceeding expectations, and Utah was expected to win the South, so. Um, and they were expected to win the conference at Pac-12 Media Day. They were right. the they were the choice. People expected them to win. They their their schedule dictated that they could win. Yeah. They didn't play Oregon in the regular season, and I don't think they played Stanford as well. So, and Stanford was, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know how controversial this is going to sound to you when I say it, but I also feel like they lost the Pac-12 championship with the better team. I think they were the better team. The more senior heavy, more talented from top to bottom team got beat by three touchdowns. I, I, bro, it, it, I can't, it, it makes zero sense. And the only thing I can make out of it, because mind you, they're, they had fewer first and second team selections than any other conference champion over the last nine years. And it's not even close Think, think about this. 2016, Washington had 12. 2012, Stanford, 10. 2014, Stanford yeah. had 10. 2014, Oregon, uh, 10. USC in 15 had 9. Stanford in 2018 had, had 8. Washington in 2011 had 8. Oregon in 2019 has four. What do you feel like they got right? Do you feel like they got anything like just, you think what, defensive player of the year probably? Yeah, I I thought that, that, okay, so they have Zach Moss as offensive player of the year. I personally think that's fair because they're never going to give offensive player of the year to a, to a, to a tackle. Yeah. I want because the real MVP, the real MVP of the conference was a sophomore offensive lineman, and they're not gonna. They it just would never happen. Yeah, he did win the Morris Trophy for the best offensive slash defensive lineman in the conference, though. Penesul won won that. But remember, we talked about though that Zach Moss should be Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year. I thought they got I, that yeah. right. 
just just because I mean it wasn't like he had a spectacular season, but he did have a solid season, and there was not really anybody to contend with him. He rushed for thirteen hundred yards and fifteen touchdowns, which is a solid season. But in but it's not great by Pac twelve standards because we've had guys put up damn near two thousand yards. And, right. and he, he rose from the grave against ASU. So you got to you, you got to respect the divinity because <laughs> I was I was 100 percent sure that he, he was going to be done for multiple weeks when he was. Oh, yeah. Motionless on the field. He came back to score a touchdown, I think. Yep. Yep. Uh, defensive player of the year, Evan Weaver at Cal. It is hard to not give it to a guy who leads the nation in tackles with 173. 14 tackles a game. I mean, okay, let's put this in perspective. Cal's single season record of 167 sacks was set in 1985 by by Hardy Nickerson. Like that's where this dude is is at, and he joins uh, Michael Kendricks from Cal, who was Defensive Player of the Year, Ron Rivera, Delta O'Neill, which was amazing. I he was the first player I'd ever seen to have three picks in a game, and Damian Hughes in two thousand six, and then uh, I thought they got Offensive Freshman of the Year, Keaton Slovis, right? Um. Yeah, it just uh, I the the kid was throwing the ball all over the I, place. Yeah, uh, but but I do too. I I think there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of people who were like, but what about Jaden Daniels? But what about Jaden Daniels? Um, I think that award was won when Keaton Slovis threw for two hundred ninety seven yards in the first quarter against Arizona yeah. State. Yeah, I think mean, granted, uh, there's an article on Unafraid Show saying that Jaden Daniels is the future of the Pac-12, but it's hard to argue with what Keaton Slovis did this year. He was the third string quarterback and came in and was absolutely electric. Mind you, he did not play every game of the season because I think he missed two with injury, but the, but the kid, what did he end up passing for? He ended up passing for uh, almost 300 yards a game, which was second in the conference. Yeah, he threw for more. What did he go six, six and four as the as the yeah. primary quarterback? Yep. Because he, you can't give him credit for the Utah victory. He got knocked out on the second play of the game. So that's a Matt Fink win to me, regardless of whether Keaton Slovis started or not. So he went six and four, including the run to end the season, and he beat. ASU, who was without Jaden Daniels in that game, Jaden Daniels went seven and four with not as good of numbers, but he did have wins over three ranked opponents. Yeah. So I can see why people are making that case. But again, Keaton Slovis threw for 300 yards and four touchdowns in one quarter against Arizona State. Like that, you, you will never get away from the fact that he had the best quarter in the last 15 years of college football against the team that you're trying to make an argument that that quarterback deserves, you know? Yeah. And it, you just, I, I get, I I don't think it's unfair is what I'm trying to say. I think Keaton Slovis does. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough when you just look at the raw numbers as well, 
They both, uh, one of them played 10 games, the other one played 11 games. And you got 3,242 yards and 28 touchdowns versus 2748 and 17 touchdowns. I mean, that's 11 more t- touchdowns, another 500 yards, you know, a- in one less game. It's it's, it's going to be tough to yeah. argue against that. So I didn't have a problem with that. But I um and fresh and defensive freshman of the year, I think they got they got right even though they messed up. <laughs> even though they messed up on the defensive on on the teams, which is absolutely craziness to me, but whatever. Um, but I think that they got that right, and I think that they utterly failed on Coach of the Year. Utterly failed on Coach of the Year. This was – it made zero sense to me, Ralph. I, I, I just can't see how the Coach of the Year is – wins the – has the quote-unquote best players – in the conference, loses the conference championship game, but then you don't give it to the guy who has the least amount of talent, according to your uh, uh, thing. Dude, this is just absolute craziness. Um, I did want to give credit to Justin Herbert as well, because there because there were some other categories. So you have Panesul, who won the Morris Trophy for the most outstanding offensive slash defensive lineman in the Pac-12, and you had Justin Herbert because they are student athletes. So you do have to acknowledge people, especially for the student aspect. He won the William J. Campbell Trophy with a 4.01, the academic Heisman. The academic Heisman. And he had over a 4.0 in nine terms over his uh, over his time at Oregon. And is a three-time Dean's List honoree. And then was out there playing football. So you got to get a kid credit for that. Um, uh, The last thing we got up today, though, is the Pac-12 players declaring for the NFL draft. Right now, we have a couple. We have, obviously, LaVishka Chenault, which we mentioned on the last episode. Trey Adams and Hunter Bryant, the tight end, the tackle and tight end from Washington, both going in the drafts. You got J.J. Taylor, who announced way before he way, way before he even played in the Territorial Cup and before he even played against Utah. And now we hear that K.D. Nixon the third wide receiver at Colorado who caught for 35 catches, 475 yards and five touchdowns is declaring for the draft. And, and people suspect, Eno Benjamin will declare as well. So out of these six players who are underclassmen, how do you feel about this, Ralph? Uh, I don't see any of them being first day do you feel like I'm wrong there I don't think I don't think there's a first maybe even a second day pick amongst the early uh well Lovisca Chenault could be uh Lovisca yeah. Chenault and Trey Adams maybe have a shot Definitely. being second round picks um but I, I I don't think anybody's leaving for that first round money um and Katie Nixon I think is going to be somebody who is uh going to have to really impress with his combine 
performance in order to be considered to, to even be drafted at all. You know, you never really know what's going on in somebody's life or, or you know, why they're making the decision that they're going to make. Um, but he's not somebody who had a lot of production, but he is somebody who has just freakish athletic talent. Uh, and um, but but not size. And so it'll be interesting to see um, how the process plays out for him and ultimately how it affects Colorado, uh, because I think they lose Tony Brown, LaVisca Chanel and Katie Nixon now, which makes it interesting that Brendan Rice is sort of waffling on his commitment to Colorado because there's nothing but room to go in there and shine immediately, you know. Um, and so uh, th- that's interesting to me. I look at Eno Benjamin and J.J. Taylor, and that's the strange one to me because I think that Eno Benjamin is probably going to get overlooked. He, the people are going to mention the fact that he had um, you know, no issue with fumbling whatsoever his first two years of college, and then all of a sudden this year he's getting hit from every direction and he's dropping the ball. I think he might have fumbled five times, maybe more. Uh, lost a couple of them in critical you know, situations. But a lot of it's just because he's trying to do so yeah. much on his own. And you watched him play. I mean, he, he is he is giving 150% on every carry. And sometimes it works out for him. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but they don't win at Michigan State without him. They don't win a lot of these games without him. They don't destroy U of A without him. You know, and so uh, – and then J.J. Taylor's the one that I feel probably the best about in knowing exactly what he brings to the table. Um, he's decent enough in pass protection. He's diminutive, but he's really quick. He can be a plug and play workhorse back if you need him to, which you probably never will at the NFL level. But if you have a game where everybody's injured and you need to give him 15 to 20 carries, he can handle that. He can catch balls out of the backfield. Uh, he kind of reminds me of Brian Hill with the Atlanta Falcons who played at Wyoming, who needed a couple of years to acclimate. And then all of a sudden now he's out there contributing. He's got a couple of touchdowns. So I, I, to me, J.J. Taylor is a guy that will probably be in the league four or five years and maybe even shine a few weeks. Um, maybe even, you know, be, be somebody who ends up on, on people's fantasy teams in, uh, in tough situations here and there. But, um, you know, the, the Hunter Bryant thing is really interesting to me just because of the, the tweener size and the lack of being a multi-use tight end. And then, uh, and then the Katie Nixon thing is just—it's pretty wild to me because I did not see that coming at all. No, that was out of the blue, dude. That was like, uh, excuse, excuse me. I see when you have guys coming out in the draft like that, there is something behind it. Typically, there's either a grades issue or a family issue that kids feel like, okay, I got to go right now. I don't have a whole lot of options. That's usually what it is. And I was a player who left early. I left after my junior year. Ended up going in the fourth round, and that was devastating to me. Like, that was one of the more devastating things in my life Like that that had happened because um, – I came out projected second round pick, maybe late first, like depending on how I tested all of that draft day comes into the first round phone starts ringing. Hey, gee, we're going to pick, you know, we're, 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 um, you know, if you're around at our pick, we're going to snatch you up, blah, blah, blah. So I'm cool. I'm sitting on the couch with my, with my family. Cause this is when the draft was, um, two days. 
uh, first, second, and third round on the first day, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh on the second day. I'm sitting there, and then you see names start popping up. And I'm like, uh, and the name that really, even though this guy's a good guy, the, the, the two names that just popped up before me that just hurt me were L.J. Smith, tight end from Rutgers, I think he was from Rutgers, wherever the hell he's from. Um, and not, but he's he's not the guy I'm saying is the good good guy. The guy that I ended up turning out to like and be cool with was Vashante Shanko. And he came from a little small school, and I was just like, who the hell was this dude? I didn't even remember him at the combine. And but but it wasn't so much uh, being jealous of anybody else; it was more hurt for me. And then come to find out that I was said to have character issues. I was like, what? Character issues? I was the youth group leader in my in my church. <laughs> like, how the hell did I have character issues? But apparently they felt like that, uh, and I heard this from two different GMs, that I had character, that they were questioning whether I had character issues because both of my roommates had had DUIs um, and they had quote unquote, apparently strong gang ties back in LA and we were best friends, but that, so that some kind of way made me have character issues. I was like, I've never been in trouble a day in my life. Never. So this is the way the draft process goes. Um, there's a lot of other factors that you don't have control of. And unless you are going to be a first or second round pick, like where you're projected, you probably shouldn't come out. You probably shouldn't like it, you know, and then also you always have to look at, is there room to go up? Like a kid, like in no Benjamin, (laughs) Aside from, you know, the the fumbling issues that he had this year, I don't think there's a whole lot more room that another year is going to take him up in the draft process. I don't think he's going to all of a sudden be a first-round draft pick no matter what happens next year. Even if he rushed for 2,000 yards, I think he's pretty much going to stay where he's at. J.J. Taylor could probably move up. LaVishka Chenault. Uh, pretty much is slotted where he's slotted. He might be able to creep into the first round, but he's probably a second round pick. Um, Trey Adams, going to be one of the top offensive linemen. So there, you got to go. Hunter Bryant, maybe you could show you could block a little bit bit more. I think he's going to be a guy who could be a little bit disappointed ultimately with his draft status because he spends the majority of his time not with his hand in the ground and that's not the NFL. So that's my take on all those guys. Um, Oh, last thing though, Ralph, how do you feel about this? What did you think when you saw this, that the PAC 12 refs, the PAC 12 referees are calling the national championship game? So they're either going to call a game between LSU or LSU or Oklahoma and Clemson 
Yeah. Yeah. And Clemson or Ohio State. How do you think this turns out, Ralph? <laughs> well, I mean, the fear is going to be there. Um, it, it, it feels good as a Pac-12 fan to not have to worry about it, to just know that, like, if they make a mistake, it doesn't really affect us at all. Like, that's a very <laughs> freeing and liberating experience. Uh, however, as somebody who would just like to see a good game, I'm having some anxiety. <laughs> if, if, if that's, you know, the appropriate way to, to put it. I, I mean, I met, I, here's an interesting thing. I actually met a Pac-12 ref uh, this last weekend. Um, and uh, his name is currently escaping me. But if I, if I remember it all, I'll bring it up. But he uh, was on the sideline of the Arizona High School Championship game because his son was out here refing, um, was out here refing the game. Uh, his name's Kevin Kaiser. Uh, and so he, he was out here. He was a nice enough guy. You know, we were on the sideline and I was talking with him and everything. And on his hand, he had three giant rings. They looked like national championship rings. And that's when I learned that these refs, these refing crews, they get bowl rings. They, for the games that they work, they get the ring uh, that, like, the team gets for participating. So he's standing out there on the high school sideline with, like, a fistful of of championship rings. And I thought that was, uh, I thought, I thought that was very interesting. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, my, my hope is maybe, maybe he's one of the guys that'll be out there on the, uh, on the crew, uh, doing it. My hope is that they do a good job. Uh, but my worry is that if they do a good job, the entire country is going to be like, see, you guys were bitching for nothing. Um, like, no, <laughs> no, we, we've got cause. Um, you know, I, I, I do hope they do a good job, though. I don't want I don't want to see I really don't want to see any nonsense. Uh, it, it seems like officiating is getting worse and worse everywhere. I don't know if you saw oh, that yeah. Keel Harry negated touchdown for the for the New England Patriots. But like that, the, the day and age we're living in is where like absolute truth is coming into question because I don't know. People are just not paying attention. It's it's. It's crazy to me, and I don't want people to be talking about the refs the next day, the day after the, the national championship. I don't want that at all, but I, I definitely do have some anxiety over what could possibly happen in oh, the game. Pat, well, I mean, SEC fans are, all, are still already upset. SEC fans and Big Ten fans in the uh, Michigan State Pac-12 game. I'm sorry, the Michigan State-Arizona State game. And you got the Cal Ole Miss game where calls were made. So their conferences are already pissed off at Pac-12 refs. For the Cal Ole Miss game, the way it ended, where they thought Ole Miss scored a touchdown, but they called them short. Like that was that didn't go over well at all. So there are so people already understand. And I'm gonna tell you this: watch for pass interference calls. Because they're because those conferences are typically uh, the the Big Ten and the SEC in particular are called. They let them be very physical and Pac-12 refs. If you blow on a guy, expect a pass interference call. So that may favor certain teams. <laughs> if if you are if you have a itchy trigger finger, but I just pray though that there's no 
you know, Cal Washington State 15-yard penalty error that gives somebody the ball on their own eight-yard line instead of the other team's 35. That would be a disaster. I mean, yeah. they would it, it would just look very bad. And then the narrative would uh, be, oh, man, the Pac-12 couldn't get in the, co- in the college football playoffs, so they sabotaged it. So, yeah. Exactly. So that's where the conference is right right now. And it's one of those things to where it's frustrating because everything that goes wrong is magnified comparatively to other conferences. Like if the SEC lost all their bowl games, people say, oh, man, nobody really cares about the games. Who cares? Whatever. But then let. But then let the Pac-12 lose. Oh, my God, they're weak. They're terrible. Oh, gosh, we should have never had them in the playoffs. I mean, I'm just wondering what happened. What is the SEC going to say if Oklahoma beats LSU? What I, I, I They're far and away, by far and away, their best team, LSU. If they get beat by Oklahoma, that's going to be I, – I don't even know how the SEC spins that. I don't know. Is the – See, that's just it. I Sometimes LSU fans don't strike me as the SEC apologist. Sometimes I think LSU fans are, are almost normal when it comes to just kind of supporting their team. I don't see a bunch of LSU fans out there. I mean, there are some, but I don't see not as many Flor- as Florida fans who, you know, for some reason go to bat for Alabama day and night. You know, I, I so... Um, I, I don't know. I, I almost feel like LSU is sort of on their own little little island within the SEC sometimes in that, like, those fans don't oh, always go to bat for the other teams and the other teams' fans don't always go to bat for LSU. But I'm sure that it, the LSU fans, to me, is a little red hen situation. Like, when there's bread to eat, they show up at the table. But, you know... If, if something goes wrong, then they're not going to claim. Just like they don't claim any of the other teams in the conference that aren't the top three teams year in and year out, yet they turn around and say those teams that they don't claim uh, are the reason that yeah. their conference is so different that they have to play against all those teams. So, I mean, I don't I don't have a lot of patience for all that nonsense, and I, I, don't, care what, I don't care what they have to say. But I will say that, like, for some reason, with just whether it's just Coach O having experience in other parts of the country, or Joe Burrows being an Ohio kid, um, that this team, while definitely an SEC team, feels different, especially with their ability to score the football. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm kind of rooting for LSU though. I, I know that I know it's been a, a decade of SEC dominance or whatever, but I just they're so much fun. And I'm, I, I'm, there's not going to be a situation in which I am unsatisfied with whoever comes out on top, um, because I, I think the one team that everybody's probably rightfully counting out is Oklahoma. Oh uh, yes. But then if they were to turn around and yes. win, somehow you have the Jalen Hurts story, and so I 100. There's yeah, not a team I'd be this, upset this with if playoff. they lost. I mean, if they if they won, it'd be great theater, great all that, and I love it. Uh, you guys, thank you guys for listening to the Pac-12 Apostles podcast. Make sure you guys share the feed, tell a friend about the Pac-12 Apostles, and enjoy it. And, and uh, we will be back in just a couple short days with a recruiting special. 
Uh, we appreciate it. Peace out. Catch you guys later.